Hello, everyone. This is Volts for August 19th, 2022. Diving further into the Inflation Reduction Act, Part 2. I'm your host, David Roberts. As I said in the previous episode, even with all the discussion of the Inflation Reduction Act lately, there is still enormous appetite for more information. I had Princeton professor Jesse Jenkins back on the pod to dig deeper into the details and address some of the common questions and objections. We ended up talking for so long that I broke the resulting pod into two episodes. In the first, we discussed fossil fuel leases, CCS, subsidies, and environmental justice. In this episode, we get into everything else, the other tax credits, the Green Bank, the new money for DOE's loan authority, EV tax credits, the methane fee, and the enormous effects the bill is likely to have on U.S. climate politics. So let's get back into it. So let's move on to some other questions about some tax credits, some stray bits and pieces. One of the things that was promising about the original Build Back Better is that it transitioned the renewable energy tax credits to direct pay, which means instead of having to have a bunch of tax liability in order to qualify for the credits, which many small or nonprofit or whatever entities can't manage, they just give you the money. Manchin did something to that. (laughs) He did something to direct pay. And in some cases, it was replaced with an even more obscure uh, policy called transferability. So again, let's just start by describing what Manchin did here. I guess we probably should start with how renewable energy projects get financed now and how they monetize these credits. You know, if you're a wind or solar developer, you're putting up a lot of, you know, of your equity at risk, you know, to develop these Mm -hmm. projects. You've spent money and time, you know, for your staff to to go work through the permitting process and get these projects developed and then try to sell them. You don't have a lot of revenue from those projects. You don't have a lot of tax appetite. And you often sell the projects to someone to operate them after you develop them. And so the way renewable energy developers have uh, successfully uh, monetized credits in the past is through what's known as tax equity finance where you find a big bank like Goldman Sachs or Wells Fargo or JP Morgan Chase to invest alongside you in the project as an equity owner. And in exchange, they get the tax credits. Right. So they claim all of the tax credits for themselves and they're, you're effectively buying their equity in exchange for the tax credits. And right now that's a pretty bespoke market, right? There's a handful of banks and other financial entities that play in this market there's a lot of demand for those, you know, that kind of financing and the demand is growing and the banks take a big chunk of the money for themselves. So for every, you know, $100 we send to uh, in, you know, the production tax credit or investment tax credit for clean energy projects, the banks might take 15, 20, 25, maybe even $30 of that for themselves. Which is, you know, logically reducing the net impact of these tax credits. Exactly. So only, you know, 70 to 85% of that value goes through to actually support clean energy, which is the purpose that the taxpayers should be paying for. So that's dumb. (laughs) (laughs) It raises costs. It makes the, the programs less fiscally responsible. It just makes money for big banks. Nobody likes big banks, uh, except for the political class that gets donations (laughs) from them, I guess. And, And the real concern here in this bill is that there are a ton of tax credits in the bill. Yes. And there simply won't be enough tax equity appetite to claim all of them. Right. 
And so if there's a max, you know, if there's only a hundred billion dollars of tax equity, or it's, it's really more like 20 billion a year, I think, and you're trying to move a hundred billion dollars of tax credits, forget it. They're not going to get used. You're going to effectively cap the amount of tax credits that can be taken advantage of. Exactly. So that was the scenario that we're trying to prevent. And we did successfully prevent, um, which is good. The best way to have prevented that is what was in the House bill, which is called direct pay, which basically means if you claim the tax credit, you can treat it as if you directly paid that amount of tax, even though you didn't owe it, and then you get a refund, right? So like, you know how when you you pay too much and you're withholding over the course of the year, you get a check, a refund check in the mail after you file your taxes. So that's 100% of the value of the credit in your pocket. In your pocket. There's a little bit of a delay because you have to file your taxes. There's some time value to the money, whatever. But yeah, basically you get 100% of the value in direct pay. And the original house bill had direct pay for all of the major business tax credits. All of them. Yeah, all of them. 45Q for CCS, the hydrogen tax credit, the um, advanced manufacturing tax credit, the clean electricity tax credit, uh, all of them. And what Senator Manchin did was restrict the availability of direct pay to only nonprofits and publicly owned utilities, which is, this is a, you know, a big benefit. They had no tax appetite in the past. And so they basically solely bought projects from third parties, from independent power producers. They didn't own and rate base, you know, any of their own projects and because they couldn't claim the tax credits if they did. So they'd be way more expensive than buying from a third party. Now they can all get the tax credits directly with full refundability, even though they haven't, they pay no taxes. Which is cool, but can I ask, why, why, Joe, why? Direct pay, it, it just means the amount of money you're setting aside for this is all going to the projects rather than 30% of it going to the banks. Why oppose that? Yes. What is even, did he even offer any kind of rationale? So he, I've, I'm told he did. <laughs> uh, I have not heard it from him. I, you know, my, this is hearsay. I didn't hear it myself, but uh I heard that he spoke to a certain major banker uh, that is involved in the tax equity market who told him that having banks involved in project finance is good for due diligence to make sure that projects are real and pass all the you know risk screens that a bank uh, can bring to the table, which is self-interested advice from a <laughs> large think? bank involved in tax equity finance and is frankly not... I mean, like every project has banks providing debt. I know. And equity. It's not like they're just freewheeling, throwing money at each other outside exactly. of the bank. So it's a mendacious argument. And, you know, and, and Joe Manchin seemed to have bought it. Um, and I think he was also um, uncomfortable creating the precedent for, you know, massive refundable tax credits that you don't actually even have to have any tax equity uh, appetite. You can just get them. Because to be fair, we haven't ever done that in the past. Like there's not any precedent for direct pay like this in the tax code. We did a period of time during the financial crisis where we offered grants in lieu of tax credits um, only during the financial crisis for you know a couple of years. But there's never been an exhaustive direct pay. He nuked direct pay for normal commercial projects, but you can still get them if you're a nonprofit. Yeah. And then, so we all, you know, there was a moment of panic where the, we thought we were going to lose the, you know, the basically it was going to get capped out where there would be no ability to actually, like that would have been the big poison pill that if Manchin did that, it would have substantially undermined the strength of all of the credits. Right. And so what we were able to insert, you know, folks that worked on this hard, um, uh, and I think there's a lot of credit here to Earl Blumenauer's staff on the House Ways and Means Committee, who had developed and introduced a bill for this previously, is a, provi- a new ability to transfer the credits 
to any third party that you know don't have to be an equity investor in your project. You can just sell your tax credit to any other business with tax appetite. Mm. And so that'll make a much easier market to offload these credits to someone else than the current process where somebody has to actually be an, an, an investor in your project, right? Where they take on risk and they have to do due diligence. And they have to sign a whole bunch of stuff. And, and like, there's a lot of transaction costs there. And so, you know, limited appetite for that. Now you just say, look, I'm going to sell you the credit. Do you, will you give me 95 cents on the dollar for it? 98, 92, like I'll find the best price and I'll sell it to you. And there will be a haircut there because, you know, nobody's going to want to pay a hundred cents for, you know, on the dollar because <laughs> right. uh, then they're not better off, but, but there, it'll be a lot smaller than the, than the haircut that the banks take, uh, under tax equity finance. This doesn't restore the ability of entities to get 100% of the value of the tax credit, but it does raise substantially raise the amount of value they're able to get for it in such a way that you think it'll be, I mean, this is obviously kind of a judgment call, but like how good of a world is this relative to a world of direct pay? How much are we losing? We modeled that as a 10% haircut. Hmm. The idea being about five, you know, that the buyer would pay about 95 cents on the dollar and that the uh, transaction, you know, market search, transaction costs, lawyers, accountants would take 5%. That's probably uh, accurate for like the first couple of years. But my guess is that will go down as these markets develop and there's a more, you know, liquid competitive market for resale. Mm-hmm. Um, and the, you know, the process becomes less bespoke and more, more standardized, in which case it could drop to, you know, maybe a few percent, 3% or, you know, 5%. So it's not as good as direct pay, but within striking distance and way better than the status quo. And uncapped in its availability right, because there's right. plenty of federal tax appetite. And so we don't face this sort of maximum limit on how much tax credits can can get out the door, which was the real doomsday scenario. So we avoided that. We improved the efficiency of the credits. We opened the credits to any nonprofit and publicly owned utility that have never had access to them before. That includes, by the way, nonprofit community solar developers mm. and people like that. You know, the CCAs, the community choice aggregators that are, you know, are, are publicly owned or nonprofit entities. So that's good. That's all good relative status quo. It's not as good as direct pay. Um, and then the other thing that he did is that because he likes certain credits. <laughs> yes, I was going to ask about this. Oh, yeah, they get God. to elect to do direct pay for five consecutive years out of the period that they are able to claim the credit. So this is only available for 45Q for carbon capture, for f- the new um, tax credit for hydrogen, clean hydrogen production. And for the advanced manufacturing tax credits in the bill. Mm-hmm. And the idea, you know, there is a logic behind this. There's a reason we like people pitch this is that the ones most likely to get tax equity finance or be able to offload are the, are the wind and solar projects that are more, you know, vanilla, right. right? People are used to these projects. There's a lot of them. They're smaller. The ones that'll be harder are the riskier investments in manufacturing facilities and nascent technologies like hydrogen and CCS that just don't have the track record. And so, you know, if you're going to offer them to any of them, offer them to the less mature ones. And I guess that would convince him to at least allow five years, you know, not full, but it has to be five consecutive years. So once you turn it on, you you can't turn it off. Mm -hmm. But the idea is that, you know, if you're a, a manufacturing facility, you know, getting up and running, you don't have a lot of profit at the beginning because you're spending a lot of money you know, on capital building your facility and taking losses. And then over time you start to become profitable. So for those first five years, you can go ahead and just get direct pay and and have that improve your cash flow. This is another area 
God, it just makes me like retroactively anxious <laughs> looking oh, at how you, all this- Welcome to the last two years of my life, Dave. I am so much more relaxed <laughs> today than I have been. The contingency, the fickleness, the, the randomness yes. of some of this and how it all just like, it's like a roulette wheel where it just, a lot of this just happened to kind of settle out in a decent place right at the exact right moment. You know? Yep. <laughs> so this is another area where Mansion could have done- enormous damage relatively easily and instead sort of like it's a glancing blow right it's like uh yep he did a little damage but not didn't cripple the thing and that's just like whoever the last rich white guy he talked to on his yacht uh, happened to say some of the right things so uh, here we are yeah. <laughs> uh, we, some people tried to deploy some of those folks <laughs> thank you fate. The there uh, anyway, so direct pay is gone for wind and solar. Transferability is a decent substitute. I know there are some... And direct pay for nonprofits. Don't forget direct pay for nonprofits. That's a big win. Right. Direct pay for nonprofits and municipal utilities. That's a big thing. Let's move on to a couple of random questions. How long are these tax credits in place for? Because, you know, this is, I think a lot of people understand at this point that this sort of on and off or, you know, last minute extension of these tax credits through our history has been a real impediment to growth in these markets. One of the great things about this bill is it puts a lot of tax credits in place for a long period of time. So you got a lot of runway, a lot of predictability. So what are the time constraints on these tax credits? Yeah. So most of the tax credits are available for the decade from 2023 to 2032. That's huge. That's huge. To have that decade in particular be the pivotal decade. <laughs> it, it's, it's super huge. I mean, yeah, this is this is the decade that we had to drive ourselves like over the top of the mountain and down the other side, right? Like this is the pivotal decade to get on track to net zero emissions. And we have just laid out, we have bought ourselves the decade. You know, there's more work to be done, yeah. but like we just got all the federal and, you know, financial incentives that we need for the next decade. And and it's also, it's better than that because most of the supply side credits, like the, um, you know, the clean electricity and hydrogen and CCS and everything, they have um, commenced construction dates. So it's commenced construction of your project before the end of 2032. And then you can have three to five years to bring your project online. And so in general, this means these tax credits will be paying out to projects coming online all the way through 2035 and maybe even a couple years after. So all these credits end after a decade or how does how does that work? Or, or So most of them end after a decade. Some of them have a couple year sunset periods um, over like the two years after 2032. And interestingly, for the clean electricity credit, you know, the, the production investment tax credits transition in 2025 from their current form, which is like, you have to be on the, the list of eligible technologies for the PTC or the ITC, mm -hmm. like solar is not on the PTC list, it can only do the ITC, wind is on both for some reason, you know, geothermal has been on one and then the other, like, you know, it, it's a very um, weird, you know, specific list of technologies. Going forward, that will be replaced in 2025 by a new tax credit uh, environment where, you can elect either the ITC or the PTC, whichever one's better for you. And it's eligible for all carbon-free electricity technologies. A huge simplification. And that yeah. was, uh, was that Wyden or? That was Ron Wyden. Yeah, that was Ron Wyden's staff. And then the other thing that Ron Wyden did, and this actually survived through the bill, was that it is actually for the clean electricity credit, it does not sunset in 2032. 
it sunsets in 2032 or the date when we reduce emissions from the power sector to 25% of current levels. Mm. So when we cut emissions by 75%, whichever comes later. Um, and so if we don't hit that goal by 2032. Should we worry about hitting that? I mean, I'm very bullish on renewable energy. What happens if we get there before a decade passes? Then it's whichever's later. It's 2032. Oh. So it's, it's, again, it's whichever is later. Got it's, it, it's, got yeah. It. So if we hit it, say, in 2030, which is possible on the outside, then it, it still expires in 2032. It's still a, a placed in service in 2032 and actually phases down in 2033 and 2034 and is only gone in 2035. So it'll power us for in terms of clean electricity production through the mid 2030s and maybe even longer if it takes us longer to hit there. And then the reason there's so much uncertainty about when we get to that 75% reduction is that we remember we're also going to be driving electrification over this time period. Which will increase demand. Yes. So we're going to go into the first period of sustained decline in oil and gas consumption in US history and the first period of sustained electricity consumption growth since the 1980s mm-hmm. uh, at the same time. So electricity growth is going to go up and, you know, depending on how quickly, you know, it may be harder or easier to hit that 75% target. So this is a great little addition. Thank you, Ron Wyden uh, and your team. Uh, all credit uh, in many cases to Bobby Andres, who's the, the key staffer. Love those uh, sneaky little details. What about another random question? What about the prevailing wage stuff, the job quality stuff? Did Manchin add that or was that always in there? And what is it exactly? Yeah, the prevailing wage requirements were always in there um, and were uh, a key priority for the labor movement and for the Blue Green Alliance and other uh, groups that are, you know, environmental and labor group, you know, coalitions. And, you know, the idea there is look, we need millions of people to move into jobs in the clean energy economy. And those jobs should be good jobs for both justice reasons and practical reasons. Because if we want to get a bunch of people into these industries, you need to pay them well enough that they're going to come work in those industries. And we need to create pathways into those industries as well, which is where the apprenticeship requirements come from. Shout out to Washington State's recent legislation, which pioneered this. Yep. So Evergreen Action and Blue Green uh, Alliance and other groups that worked at the state level successfully in in Washington to implement that kind of requirement and a few other states succeeded in getting that into all of the supply side tax credits. So 45Q, the nuclear PTC for existing nuclear projects, the new uh, uh, and existing clean electricity credits, the hydrogen credit. Basically, all of those credits are worth 20% of their full value if you don't meet those requirements. Ah, so to get the full value of the credit, you have to meet job quality. Yep. Yeah. And that's going to add paperwork and you know some filing headache and risk for project developers. It exempts all the, the PTC, ITC exempts all projects under one megawatt. So if you're a you know, small solar developer, you don't have to meet this rule, although you should, dude, come on. Um, <laughs> but you don't have to file the paperwork. And so it's, you know, it's going to be bigger projects and and they should be able to, you know, grow up and take care of this. A very cool provision. But, and, you know, and again, it's like if we want green jobs to be good jobs, right? Yes. Because that's what's going to sustain the politics of this. That's what's going to drive the growth of the workforce that we need to power the, you know, the mm-hmm. clean energy economy. And because it's the right thing to do. <laughs> yeah, really uh, a cool provision that I don't think is widely understood or appreciated. Here's a, a worry I heard a couple of times. What about implementation? This is gonna have to, a lot of this stuff is going to have to be done by states, done by utilities. And we remember, you know, a lot of people still remember when the ACA was passed. It included Medicaid expansion. And then Roberts, Supreme Court, screwed that. And a lot of red states just didn't expand Medicaid. So I, 
to what extent could a, say you were a, a red state governor and you had a sort of a reflexive opposition <laughs> to anything any Democrat has ever done or said, and you wanted to make this into a states' rights issue and reject all these things, to what extent do all the benefits of this bill depend on decent implementation at the states? And to, and to what extent could states screw it up on purpose? So there's a handful of programs that are explicitly implemented by states, and that includes the um, rebate programs for low and moderate income energy efficiency and electrification that for folks that don't have tax you know, appetite that, that need a grant or a rebate. Those are block grants to states to implement uh, whole home energy efficiency and electrification programs. And so, you know, like Medicare or Medicaid, if you're going to leave the money on the table, your, your state won't benefit from that money and that would be bad. There's also funding in here to support states to implement new building codes that meet the latest international standards for building efficiency. That's another provision we didn't model. That's one of those upside things where there's money here for DOE to provide technical assistance to states that want to improve their building codes. And, you know, again, that's up to the states and local entities that set building codes, cities and, you know, metros and things like that. And, and so those are things that like are literally like, you know, you, there's money on the table, but it will only go out if, if states decide to use the money. And then similarly, on, on, uh, the, in the infrastructure law, there's a bunch of transportation funding that goes to states that right. they can use to do public transit and citywide bike networks and, and things like that, or they can use to widen highways and you know, things like that. So those are really the things that are directly in the hands of state and local policymakers. The other things are blocking actions that they could take, right? Where most of the policy, again, is tax credits, right? So that's fairly self-implementing um, at the federal level. You know, you got to know some of these things have complicated rules, like how do you set the prevailing wage requirements or how do you set the domestic content requirements? But, you know, once the IRS works those out and issues their guidance, that goes out to all 50 states and it doesn't really matter. You know, the states don't have anything to do with distributing that money. And there's a strong financial interest for people all over the country to go get that money. The things that they can do are, you know, slow down siting and permitting where that's in their authority. And where, and particularly, I think where a lot of folks have been focused and remain focused is on state utility commissions that have a lot of say, in, particularly in the West and the Southeast, where you have markets that are still vertically integrated and controlled by incumbent longtime monopoly utilities. And there you have varying degrees of public participation and process and corruption uh, <laughs> that, um, you know, they determine whether or not those utility commissions are actually uh, acting in the best interests of their customers or in the best interests of the shareholders of the monopoly utility. And that varies a lot. And so, you know, a lot of this will flow through the integrated resource planning and procurement processes and the quasi administrative law, you know, processes at those commissions. And that's where a lot of, you know, advocates and developers and, and others are going to be on the front lines of implementation, are going to need assistance. And a good focus for activism and, and um, advocacy is, is where the rubber meets the road. Uh, let's talk about EV tax credits. Everyone's super interested in these. These are one of the big headline items. What a drama. What a journey. <laughs> the EV tax credits. So in the original Build Back Better bill... They were seventy five hundred for new EVs, basically. So again, let's talk about what Mansion did <laughs> to the EV tax credits, and what effect do you think that's going to have? So it's, mainly, this is about domestic requirements. But let's just sort of start with like how the EV tax credits changed since they were first in the House bill. 
Yeah. So the, the, you know, this is again, one of those areas where Manchin did some damage, but certainly didn't do his worst. Yeah. I thought he was going to eliminate them. He said publicly that he was going to. Yeah. I, I was pretty prepared for there to be no support for EVs in the bill. We even ran before the bill came out, we had been sort of read in on some of the details that were fairly solid to start getting our model set up. So we'd be ready to go. And then the ones that were most uncertain were the leasing provisions and the EV supports. And, and so we did some bounding cases where we said like no support or all the support in the house bill. Let's just see how much of a difference <laughs> that makes. And, and that drove like a hundred, 150 million tons of difference. So like it, it's a big chunk, you know, it's like 10% of the bill if you lose that. And that was all support, not just for consumer EV credits, but also the charger credits and the business credits and, mm-hmm. you know, which are also really important. But what happened with the personal credits is initially they were $7,500, which is their current value. Right. Uh, but they're capped currently to 200,000 vehicles per manufacturer. Um, and so Tesla and uh, GM have already blown through that. I think Nissan has as well. Um, Ford is expected to blow through that this quarter. I think Toyota too. Everyone will shortly. Yeah, right? they're I mean, all, any of the successful dealers other than like bespoke, uh, you know, Ferraris or whatever that don't sell very many models will lose the credit. And so the the house bill had seventy five hundred dollars without any vehicle per you know per manufacturer cap. It was fully refundable, meaning you didn't have to have the tax appetite for it. Yes, crucial in the same way direct pay is. Just just to make that connection. Yes, the base amount was four thousand dollars. It went up to seventy five hundred if the battery was big enough. So basically, it was four thousand dollars for plug in hybrids and seventy five hundred dollars for full EVs. And then if you made it in a U.S. factory under union labor. It went up to $12,000. Which is wild. And if you also bought a, a battery that used cells manufactured in the US, then it was an additional $500. So it could be as high as $12,500 uh, if you used uh, you know, union labor and a US battery. Manchin did not like the union part. L- let's, let's be clear. Toyota did not like the union <laughs> part. And Toyota has a factory that assembles uh, internal combustion engines, I believe, in West Virginia and is a major donor to Joe Manchin. And you detect the trend here. (laughs) So, uh, yeah, so they stripped the union requirement um, right away when it went over to the Senate. Entirely. Yeah. Nothing left of that. And uh, they stripped the bonus, you know, so it's, it can't be any bigger than seventy five hundred dollars. Mm-hmm. And Mansion substantially ramped up the challenge, you know, the requirements for domestic or North American content. And so, the way the credit works now is it's part of a much broader industrial policy push to onshore the whole EV supply chain, or at least to source it from allied countries and not from China. Right. And so, the way the credit works now is. First of all, the vehicle has to be assembled in North America immediately upon passage of the law. All vehicles. All vehicles to be eligible for the credit have to be assembled in North America. Are there big categories that that immediately rules out? Like, yeah. is there any way to sort of... At the moment, Hyundai and Audis and uh, Porsche and you know other expensive ones that I don't care about, those are all assembled overseas. So they would literally have to build factories in the U.S., that's right. Now, Hyundai is already planning to do that. It'll come online in 2025, I think, in Georgia. Um, you know, most of these manufacturers, any mass market manufacturer, not a like a fancy uh, luxury manufacturer that only makes a few vehicles, they wanted to set up shop in the U.S. anyway because it's just cheaper to produce in the U.S. or North America. So they're building factories. And again, it's North America requirement. You can do it in Mexico. You can do it in in Canada. Mm-hmm. And so like Volkswagen, for example, next year begins production of the um, ID4 SUV in the US. 
you know, Ford assembles the Mach-E in, uh, in Mexico. And so, you know, most of the popular models will, will at least meet that requirement, if not immediately, then within the next year or two. Right. So that particular requirement is not that much of a, a pinhole to pass through. No, right? the only annoying piece is that it should have phased in in a year or two, not yeah. immediately upon passage. Obviously, all these domestic requirements, it is crazy that they're just going down full stop right when the bill passes. Yeah. But, but go on. Well, the other ones will probably go into effect next year. So at least we have through the end of the calendar year, but that's still mm. not much time. So going forward, now the credit is split into two parts. Half of it is tied to North American sourcing of battery components. So again, not US, but North America. You can get $3,750 if 50% of the battery's value comes from uh, assembly uh, of components or final pack assembly in North America in 2023. And that rises over time until it gets to 100% in 2029. Does that include like raw metal mining no. and, and processing? This is just- That's the other half. Just assembly of the battery pieces. Yes, it's the manufacturing of uh, of electrodes and packs and and cells or cells and packs. So that's the, you know, the value, the, the monetary value of added of the manufacturing side. The other piece is the materials. Mm. Um, and so the other half is tied $3,750 to meaning certain percentages of critical minerals value, either extracted or processed. You know, it can be a combination of the value of extraction and processing in a free trade agreement country. So not just North America, but any other free trade agreement country, or is made from recycled material in North America. Mm. Um, now that starts at 40% in 2023 and goes up to 80% from 2027 onwards. Good Lord. And that's so fast. That's so fast. Both of those are fairly fast. The e the battery side, I haven't heard a lot of concern about. Like when I talk to analysts, they say, look, there's, you know, a, a couple hundred billion dollars of investment coming in U.S. supply chains, even without this bill. A lot of, you know, it makes sense from an economic perspective because of shipment costs and logistics. So we think batteries will be assembled here regardless. Yeah. Or at least in North America, right? Next, somewhere near where the plant is. Now, the mi minerals part is harder. And the big hard part, which I haven't got to yet, is that for both of those provisions, starting in 2024, so that's just a you know a year from now, basically, <laughs> any of the material can't be extracted or processed by a foreign ent an entity of foreign concern, which is mainly China, but also Russia, North Korea, Iran. Interesting. So, so start 2024, none of the battery material can be um, from China. So none of the battery uh, manufacturing assembly can be in China in 2024. And in 2025, none of the critical mineral content can come from China. That's crazy. So we're not just trying to shift this. The bill explicitly cuts China out. <laughs> That's right. Of any credit. That seems yeah. borderline uh, aggressive in a way that might sort of irritate China and might irritate like the WTO. Uh, yeah, I have no idea how any of this is WTO legal. It probably is not and will probably be met with some kind of counter tariff at some point in the future when it works its way through that process. I don't know. I'm not a trade lawyer, but it doesn't seem like this is consistent with the WTO. It, it you know, it's a set of sourcing requirements that are restricted to you know, maybe the way they get around this is it's only it's restricted to countries of free trade agreements generally and and you know, if you don't have a free trade agreement with us, then you can't complain. I don't know. I don't want to get too deep into this, but just let's just touch briefly on this notion that there's something uniquely dangerous about buying these things from China. I just confess that when I try to follow that thread, it just doesn't seem to lead anywhere to me. We depend on other countries 
to manufacture most of our uh, clothes, our phones. Like, you know what I mean? Like, we're just surrounded by supply chains in which we're quote unquote dependent on China, but that also means they're dependent on us to buy it all. Like, that's how trade works. Like, what is the danger that Joe Manchin thinks he is forestalling by cutting China out of our supply chains? Well, I can't speak for Joe Manchin, um, but <laughs> no one can. Um, you know, I think that this reflects uh, growing, you know, geopolitical rivalry between the U.S. and China, which is not a great trend from a peace and security perspective. Yeah, um, and also reflects the observation of you know the war in Ukraine and its impact on Europe, which is that the theory of the last decade and beyond, you know, was that integration of trade would lead to the lack of conflict because yes, Germany is dependent on Russia for oil and gas, but Russia is dependent on Europe to sell that oil and gas. Right. And so they can never go to war with one another or their allies in risk conflict because it'll destroy, mutually destroy their you know economies. Yeah. I got to say, Russia seems like a special case. Like Russia is ruled by a goofball willing to punch himself in the face repeatedly because of his ego and just all of that. Like None of that seems to apply to China. Like whatever else you say about China, they're pretty rational in their market <laughs> behavior. Like they want to grow their economy. I'm not a geopolitical scholar or China scholar, so I'll, I'll defer on that one. But the base of the concern, and this is reflected in the CHIPS Act as well around semiconductors, is that you know there are certain industries that are of strategic importance, like our energy supply, our vehicles, mm -hmm. our semiconductors, which go into everything. And the critical minerals that go into all kinds of stuff, and that we should have some degree of physical security around the sourcing of those materials from allied mm -hmm. countries or domestically, so that if there is a global conflict or a global disaster or a global pandemic that disrupts those supply chains, we're not totally hosed. Um, that's the operating theory. Whether you want to, you know, I'm not endorsing it or disagreeing with it. But let's talk about the effects then. So we have these domestic requirements, uh, uh, half for assembly and manufacturing of batteries, half for the materials, either sourced in North America or sourced in a country we have a free trade agreement with. This seems, just from my uh, layman's perspective on the outside, to be quite strict, quite rapidly. And so there's a lot of concern going around. You're seeing a lot of articles pop up about this, that for at least several years and who knows how many years – zero EVs will be will be eligible for the tax credit. Is that going to impede EV growth? Is it going to impede the EV market? How big of a kind of problem or barrier do you think this is? So again, I think it's re worth remembering what the counterfactual is, which is that the tax credits for EVs effectively go away for everything but luxury vehicles in the next 12 months. Right. That's where we were without this bill. And so against the backdrop of that, I don't think it slows anything down. Better than nothing. <laughs> even if even if nobody qualifies for it in 2023, that will be maybe a hiccup in 2023. But on the other hand, you know, and this is the way we modeled it in our modeling, demand for EVs is already outstripping supply and they're already selling at a markup. Right. And so I don't think that the near term will be all that influenced by whether or not this credit exists or not. Right. Like individual people may or may not buy the car or truck because they, you know, can't afford it. And having the tax credits in the near term makes it more uh, equitable and available for a water, wider number of, of people. The other thing that Manchin added was a stricter cap on on income to claim the credits. 
Oh yeah, I want to talk about that too. Means means testing. Yeah, it's still high enough that ninety one percent of all American families meet it. It's three hundred thousand dollars a year for a married family filing jointly, and one hundred and fifty grand for an individual filing singly. So you know, if you're above that limit, great, good for you. Go buy your Porsche Taycan and don't worry <laughs> about it. But ninety one percent of Americans are below that. Households are below that limit. There's a one hundred fifty thousand uh, dollar family uh, filing limit for. The purchase of a used EV, which is now has a $4,000 credit in the bill. Again, 80 something percent of households fall below $150,000 in income. So I don't think those are too bad. And I think they reflect the fact that, you know, Manchin didn't want to be subsidizing himself or others like him who buy Maseratis and Porsches and whatever. Thanks, Joe. So, but in terms of just like the consumer experience, you know, it's one thing to just go buy an EV that is eligible for the credit, but now... It's going to be confusing for the next couple of years is the biggest impact. A lot of paperwork, a lot of implementation costs. Well, I don't think you'll have much paperwork to do other than maybe signing an income attestation form that you won't make more than $300,000 or, you know, as a household. What what will be confusing for consumers is that there will be a shifting list of vehicle models that qualify. And some may be on it one year and then fall off another year when the sourcing changes or whatever. Dealers are so bad about this already. They're so ignorant about EVs already. And they're so bad at educating customers already. This just seems like a massive dose of complication to an already relatively like uninformed <laughs> dealership community. I think it is a, I mean, the next six to 24 months or something like that are going to be pretty frustrating. Again, I don't know that that's worse than the status quo, except for for particular models like Hyundai's. But the medium term outlook is much better because not only does this bill have these requirements, but it also directly subsidizes production of critical materials, cathodes, anodes, cells, and packs in the United States. So there's pull and push for the supply yep. chain. And that is in conjunction with a whole bunch of other policies, grants, and loan guarantees that DOE has access to under the infrastructure law and this bill that are there to support retooling um, of U.S. auto manufacturing supply chains and the build out of critical minerals and battery recycling in the United States. So we can expect in the next few years a huge burst of activity around this. Oh, it's going to be hundreds of billions of dollars of investment driven into the United States in uh, critical minerals, battery assembly, battery manufacturing, you know, cathodes, anodes, EV assembly. And that's going to be, you know, great for U.S., employment. And, you know, the typical pushback against domestic content is that it raises costs for consumers relative to whatever the competitive foreign product is. The bill doesn't just require domestic content. It also covers all of that cost. And then some in the case of batteries, probably with subsidies. And so there will be no higher co you know, cost for consumers. There will be a lower cost of anything and the jobs and economic growth and vested self-interest that will join our coalition you know, politically that come with that, you know, will will materialize over the next several years in the US and, and our allied countries. You know, if you go out to 2025 or 2026, you know, by that point, a lot of these facilities are going to be coming online. The supply chains globally are going to reorient away from China to allied countries. Remember, we can sign new free trade agreements with other countries if we need to in the next few years yeah, right. to expand the list of mineral suppliers, you know. And and the other thing to keep in mind is that it's China doesn't produce a lot of raw min minerals except for graphite. It doesn't produce cobalt. It doesn't produce lithium in large quantities. What it does is process them and build the packs and modules and cathodes and anodes. And the reason it does that is not because, again, it doesn't have the raw materials. It does that because it's had a decade of robust industrial policy support for the whole supply chain. 
and the world's largest market by far for electric vehicles. Let me ask this, though. I'm not sure people appreciate that mining these minerals and then processing, the initial processing of these minerals is just dirty, nasty, gross stuff. It's very low on the value chain uh, in terms of industrial activity. It's just not super clear to me why we want to bring that into the U.S. Like, do we really want a bunch of metals mines in the U.S.? Do we really want a bunch of, like, filthy processing facilities? I mean, this is a little mercenary to let it happen somewhere else and enjoy the fruits. But again, that's kind of like what trade is. So what is the case for having these very dirty industries imported into the U.S.? I think the environmental impact of the processing varies a lot across uh, techniques and across minerals and what one does in China or in even worse in, you know, the Democratic Republic of Congo, you know, with no rule of law is very different than what would one would do in the United States or North America or, you know, or Canada. So, you know, I, I don't know how bad, you know, the, what the you know scale of environmental impact will be, but it'll certainly be less if it's in the U.S. or Canada under, you know, their environmental rules than it is if it's in you know, in the DRC. I'm just not sure people know what they're asking for when they're asking for these things to come to the U.S. Yeah, I, I'm not sure either. I mean, I think, you know, like if you're Joe Manchin and you're used to living, you know, you represent a state that is used to digging stuff out of the ground, uh, maybe that's what you're thinking. I don't know uh, that, you know, this is an area where West Virginia could have, you know, continued economic activity. I'm not really sure what the, you know, minerals deposits look like there. But I, you know, I think the case for battery assembly, uh, you know, and materials is very clear. And again, it's not a U.S. requirement for sourcing of critical minerals, although there is U.S. subsidies for processing and recycling. Recycling is going to be a big one as well that will grow a lot as we you know, have lots of big batteries coming out of vehicles. Now, just the last note on EVs is that you know, there's a lot of talk about the consumer-facing credit, which is important, right? That's the one we all interface with. But there's also a 30% business credit uh, for any you know, business purchase of an electric vehicle, up to $7,500 for a light vehicle, auto or truck or SUV or van, um, and up to $40,000 for a medium duty vehicle or heavy duty vehicle like a bus or a trash pickup truck or a um, you know, fire truck, whatever it is, right? All those heavy vehicles. Uh, and also, you know, port dryage trucks and long and medium haul delivery vehicles. Do those face the same domestic? They do not. They face none of the domestic content requirements. Neither does the $4,000 used EV credit, which is now available for the first time ever as well, which, you know, the vast majority of people don't buy new cars. Yeah, they buy really used cool. previously that's owned really, cars. That's a really cool provision. And as far as I know, was added, surely Mansion didn't add it. No, it was in from the beginning. Oh, it was? Okay. Yeah, it was in from the beginning and, and it survived. Um, it, you know, the, the again, he adjusted the AGI, the, the income cap a little bit, but uh, mm. it, not in a way that I don't think is, you know, that significant. And so you're modeling, what does this do to... EVs, like what? What does your modeling show for the EV market and penetration in the U.S. as a result of the bill? So basically, we think that in the near term, it will have basically no impact because the market <laughs> will be supply constrained, not demand constrained. Right? There's more demand for EVs than they right. can make already. But a lot of furious activity to overcome that. A lot of manufacturing yes. facilities being built. That'll probably play itself out around 2025 or 2026, and then we'll have a lot of models with ample supply, and 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 then the question is the level of demand. And so, in that media, you know, the late 2020, the you know, second half of the 2020s, what the subsidies will effectively do if they can be met in progressively higher levels 
you know, in combination with declining costs for EV components and batteries, by 2028 to 2030, maybe even sooner, it will basically be cheaper the minute you get to the lot to buy an EV over a conventional vehicle. And so instead of facing the current trade-off of pay more up front, you know, several thousand dollars more for the equivalent car, but save a bunch in fuel costs, right? It only costs you a dollar, dollar fifty a gallon equivalent to, you know, charge your car. And it costs half as much for maintenance and you don't do oil changes and all that stuff. Your brake pads don't wear out as fast. So, you know, right now we have this trade-off, pay more up front, pay less over time. That trade-off will be gone. It'll just be pay less up front and pay less over time. And so our model actually kind of breaks when you put that in um, <laughs> because it is based on an economic payback period. Um, we distribute across the consumer population a range of payback times that they require for these upfront investments. And the shortest one is, I think, one year. Right. This is economically rational behavior would be everyone buys an EV at that point. Everyone buys an EV. And so our model by 2030, everyone buys an EV. <laughs> now, I don't think everyone will buy an EV in 2030. We're going to fix that in our next round. We'll probably cap it out at somewhere between 40 and 80% market share as across our kind of pessimistic to optimistic cases. Mm-hmm. But I, I would wager it's going to be closer to 80 than 40 because, you know, the economics, A, they're just, they're better cars to drive. So once people start to get into them and they are, you know, available, your neighbors all have them, like you've ridden in them, you know, and then the fact that they're cheaper and they cost less and you don't have to get an oil change and you don't have to go to the gas station. Jesse, I'm a car hater and I love my Bolt. I'm, <laughs> exactly. I'm in I, love with my Bolt. And it's the lowest, it's like the... It's the lowest end, yeah. <laughs> it's the econo box of EVs and it's so fun. So the market's going to go game busters. That's the upshot. And and like like with... Wind and solar, like with CO2 storage and networks, like with transmission lines, the big question this bill leaves uh, is how fast can we scale up these industries? And that's a good place to be. Are any tax credits outside the EVs means tested? No, I don't think so. Um, There are the rebate programs for home energy efficiency and electrification that are means tested. Um, I don't think any of the credits are. And the consumer credits, they go into effect, what, January 1st? Because like, a lot of people are asking, like, I just bought a yeah. heat pump or I'm in the market for a heat pump or I'm I'm shopping for an EV. Like, timing-wise, do they all just go? I think what they do is they extend the current credit through 2023. And in some, and, and some cases, they were expiring, maybe. The home energy efficiency upgrade credit and the residential clean energy credit for, like, rooftop solar or geothermal heat pumps, uh, those, I think, start in, in 2023. So you have to wait till next year. If you want to claim the new credit, you can claim the existing credit for those, which is at a lower value uh, in 2022. So if I were contemplating switching out my natural gas furnace for a heat pump, which I am in fact contemplating, financially, I'm best waiting till January. Yeah. If you wait till January and you buy a new heat pump for your heating and cooling, uh, space heating, cooling, or a heat pump water heater, you can get up to... either $2,000 or 30% of the cost, whichever is lower. That will be the only credit that you are eligible for under the 25C non-business energy property credit, the Mm -hmm. energy efficiency personal credit uh, for that year. It is capped at either $1,800 if you don't buy a heat pump or a biomass stove or boiler, or $2,000 if you buy one of those for the year. Mm-hmm. But it's now a yearly credit, not a lifetime limit. It used to have a lifetime limit right. that you, once you hit it, you could never claim it again. So this is every year. So maybe you do the heat pump this year. The next year you do a panel upgrade and you install your EV charging, you know, charger, 
which has a separate tax credit that starts next year, although is only available in rural and non-wealthy urban areas. So if you're in a high income urban area, you may not be able to claim that charger credit. But yeah, you can get uh, $600 um, up to $1,800 in total for a bunch of other things like efficient windows, uh, lighting improvements. Um, there's a whole bunch of things on the list that you can get up to $600 per item and no more than $1,800 per year. So I guess in some, the way to think about this is there's a list of improvements that you should look at. And if you want to do three of those in one year, do that and get your $1,800. And if <laughs> right. you want to do a heat pump or a heat pump water heater, try to do that in a separate year if you're able to, right. because you'll get $2,000 for that in the next, you know, in the other year. But don't try to do them at the same time or you can't get more than $2,000. One more thing, separate thing. There is a separate credit for home solar systems. Mm. So that's solar electric, solar hot water. Uh, if you want to install a fuel cell, go for it. That's included. Small wind systems and geothermal heat pumps, that's 30% mm. with no cap. Mm. And that's a separate credit. So if you want to install a solar system or solar hot water or a ground source heat pump, you can just get 30% of the value of that. That's up from 10% currently. Interesting. Um, that's a big, big uh, bump. Um, and that's available through 2032 and steps down in 2034. And then it's gone in 2035. Let's just do a rapid round here. Let's try to, I'm try to get through like several more questions. We're going to do super tight, short. There's a couple more that people wanted to hit. I know you've given very generously of your time. <laughs> I don't know who's still going to be listening at this point, but there are a couple of things I wanted to hit. So um, the methane fee, how big of a deal is it? How worried should we be about measurement and verification? Because there's a lot of stories around about people gaming the fee and lots of different ways of, you know, whether you're self-reporting or how it's going to be measured, et cetera, et cetera. Just give us a capsule summary how we should think about the methane fee. So the methane fee uh, increases to $1,500 per ton of methane, which at the EPA's official conversion rate of 25 tons of CO2 per ton of methane, that's it's about $50 a, a ton of CO2. That's enough to capture a lot of cost-effective mitigation opportunities. And so, you know, that's good. Uh, it will make it, you know, much more cost-effective for um, firms to go after leaks and, you know, and malfunctioning compressors and, and, and things like that. It only applies, and this is sort of the key, to entities that are subject to the GHG reporting protocol that the EPA administers. And that's, as we looked it up, that's about 40% of the overall reported methane inventory. And so it doesn't apply universally to all oil and gas methane emissions. Um, it only applies to the, the ones that are part of the GHG reporting protocol. And then the change that was made in the Senate version, because in, when the House version came out, the EPA rule hadn't been introduced, is that if you comply with the newly proposed but not final yet EPA methane regulations, you are not uh, subject to the price. So those are going to have to be carefully coordinated so that the methane regulations are not weaker than what the price would drive. Right. Um, otherwise, you know, entities will comply with the regulation and be exempt from the price and not do as much. I think that EPA knows that. Our, the Biden administration is certainly motivated to do this. So I would expect that the EPA final rule will be well calibrated to work hand in hand with the methane fee. And the big opportunity would be, and I don't know how, like what legal authority they have to do this, per se, but the big opportunity would be to expand the um, reporting requirements to the GHG reporting protocol as part of the methane rules or some other uh, EPA action that basically said, we're going to go from 40% of you know people participating in the reporting program to a much wider share. 
And that might be, it's possible that could be done as part of the EPA methane regs, or it could be possible that's a separate administrative action that could be taken. But if, if so, that would increase the impact of the methane fee. Now, the other thing to address is the one that a lot of people point out is this is based on the 100-year global warming potential, not the near-term, much greater impact of methane, and that it's at the older 25 to 1 ratio in the fourth assessment report, which is what EPA continues to use in its inventory, um, official inventories uh, and reporting, uh, and our nationally determined contribution at the UN, um, rather than the more recent one, which is even at the 100-year is already up to 30, I think, not 25. And this is all arising from the fact that methane has a very big impact on warming in the near term, but it degrades in the atmosphere and falls out basically over time um, or is, you know, is oxidized into CO2. Uh, and so its impact wanes over time as opposed to carbon dioxide, which lasts in the atmosphere for hundreds of years and has a very consistent warming impact. And so in some ways, between the fact that we're not considering the near term impact the you know, much greater near-term impact of methane and the fact that we know the EPA inventory is under-reporting total emissions, that means our baseline emissions are higher and it means the emissions impact in the near-term of methane is higher. Um, and so we're under, when, like when we report the 2030 emissions in our modeling results, that's in some ways under-reporting the aggregate impact, mm-hmm. right? Because we're basing that on the EPA inventory and on the AR4 conversion ratio. So that's bad. Um, on the other hand, Anything that reduces methane emissions has an even larger impact than we show in our modeling if you consider the 20-year global warming potential and the fact that there are a lot more leaks out there to go get with good regulation and good pricing. And so the upside, you know, it's like the downside of having a higher baseline is that the upside of reducing from that baseline is a bigger impact on near-term global warming. And so there's a potential that we can really go after methane, you know, through good EPA regulation and through the, you know, and, and with support from, but not exclusively this carbon fee and this methane fee that would actually deliver greater emissions reductions and greater impact on near-term warming than um, we are, you know, and others are reporting in our modeling based on EPA inventories. Oh, we have to, we have to get to these. Um, there are at least two big policies in this bill that are not modelable uh, in their impact on emissions, but that we have reason to believe will have substantial effect bringing emissions down. And I'm thinking about A, the Green Bank, and B, the massive pot of money for the loan program office. Just say real quickly how those are going to work and why, why we should be optimistic about what they'll do to emissions. Yeah, so there's $27 billion via the EPA to establish um, or support funding at uh, state or local or nonprofit green banks or technology accelerators or whatever you want to call them. These are financial entities that um, help underwrite and provide you know, preferential financing for deployment of clean energy and efficiency programs um, at the local level. Um, there's a number of states that already have them. Many more could set them up with this $27 billion pot of money. The money is highly leveraged because it's used as the bank's collateral for a bunch of loans. So, you know, if you have $5 billion, you might be able to make $50 billion in loans or, or $15 billion, depending on how aggressive you are and risky, how much risk they take. Uh, and half of that, uh, at least 15 billion of it has to specifically go to benefit low income and disadvantaged communities. Mm. So this is one of many, you know, 60 billion in total of programs in the bill that are specifically designed to benefit low income Oh, and uh, disadvantaged communities and overburdened environmental, you know, environmentally overburdened communities, so environmental justice communities. Right. And $27 billion, if each dollar of green bank uh, money leverages, you know, five or 10 or $50 of private capital, $27 billion could draw in 
a giant pool of private capital. That's not a small thing. Yeah, and and I'd say we tried to model that one in our modeling. We sort of assumed a a fairly conservative leverage ratio, I think of only three to one. Mm. And we assumed that it acted a little bit more like a grant, which means it has a more additional impact than just like a concessionary loan. So the hard thing is like, what's additional? Like, yes, maybe it made it more affordable, but it didn't really, and you know, so like the higher the leverage, the less likely it's actually having impact, to be honest, hmm. right? Because you need them to take on some risk and do some things that the private right. sector wouldn't finance. Um, and so we kind of assumed it was a little more conservative, um, you know, big uncertainty there. That's one of the things we'll, we'll vary in our refresh from, you know, more higher levels of leverage and to lower levels. But we did try to model the impact of that in terms of its, its support for uh, solar deployment and energy efficiency and, um, uh, EV charger networks in urban areas and things like that. You know, again, the the impact could be a lot larger than we than we did model. And then, how much new money is the loan program office getting? Because uh, listeners will remember my my pod with uh, Jigar Shah and all the exciting stuff they're doing at that office. And again, how much private capital can be leveraged with this money? Yeah, the, the, the loan program office is going to be the the place to be if you are interested in <laughs> financing the clean energy transition. So. The infrastructure law allowed the loan programs to start supporting supply chains as well as final assembly. So that uh, for both vehicles and clean energy technologies. So that means they can now support, you know, say critical minerals or battery recycling Mm. or things like that. The Inflation Reduction Act provides $40 billion in new loan authority for the 1703 loan program, which is used to support commercialization of clean energy technologies. That includes $3.6 billion in appropriations to cover the cost of some of those loan guarantees. So that means they can take on riskier projects for, um, you know, and better favorable rates for earlier stage technologies, like say, a, you know, a first of a kind or nth of a kind uh, nuclear power plant or advanced geothermal power plant or something like that. There's $3 billion in new appropriations for the Advanced Technology Vehicle Manufacturing Program to support retooling and expanding the U.S. automotive manufacturing sector. They eliminated the previous $25 billion loan cap, and that's likely to be enough funding to support on the order of $30 billion or more in, in loans to the automotive sector. And then there's a new uh, $5 billion of funding and up to $250 billion of loan authority. So a massive new program That's huge for energy community reinvestment financing. And so this is funding to help retool, repower, repurpose, or replace energy infrastructure that has ceased operations, including remediation of environmental damages associated with that infrastructure, mm. so cleanup of the sites, or enable operating energy infrastructure to avoid, reduce, utilize, or sequester air pollutants or anthropogenic emissions of greenhouse gases. So in other words, for existing polluting fossil fuel facilities to install emissions controls or carbon capture. And so this funding, I, I, you know, I, I spoke recently to Jigger about this because I'm trying to figure out how we can model it next time around. We didn't model it at all. There's also a similar program at USDA that's available for their Rural Electrification Authority to do similar work. $9.7 billion there to support rural electric co-ops doing the same kind of transition. Again, can be leveraged many times. And so what this funding will let you do is, you know, say you have a coal plant on your books as a utility. You still owe some debt on that coal plant and you're paying 4% a year commercial, you know, debt. You can refinance that with the DOE at maybe three and a half percent, and then you can shut it down. So you pay less now on your remaining debt and you can refinance, you can get loan guarantees um, or other financial support for the replacement power, whether that's a new nuclear plant repowering that same site or wind or solar using that interconnection or whatever. 
And the loan guarantee will help you go from, say, maybe a 50% equity, 50% debt kind of split in financing, which is probably typical for a commercial project. That equity is at like 11 or 10% per year payback, and the debt's maybe 4%. To a project that's maybe 20% equity and 80% debt with a federal loan guarantee, where you're now you know only paying that 11% equity on 20% of your project instead of 50%. And you can maybe pay only three and a half percent on your debt because it's backed up by the government and you don't pay as much to the bank. So that's a big shift in the financing cost for some of these projects if you know people take advantage of this money, right? So unlike the tax credits, it's less self-executing. You right. got to go to DOE and talk to Jigger and his team and, and unlock <laughs> right. this money. But it's a big tool and 250 billion is a lot. They can underwrite a lot of investment. And that's at one time. So as, as loans are repaid, that money, that authority is, is reclaimed and can be reused. And energy communities are, you know, everybody's always talking about what to do about communities that are dependent on fossil fuel and fossil fuel infrastructure and fossil fuel facilities. This is in part an answer to that question. There's going to be an enormous amount of capital. That's right. Or loan authority available to them to transition out of that. And this is in addition to, again, there's programs for USDA for rural co-ops. There's programs for tribal loan guarantees for tribal uh, entities. And then there is a bonus tax credit for clean electricity generation for the wind, the, the clean electricity production tax credit or investment tax credit that boosts the value of those credits by 10% for the PTC and 10 percentage points for the investment tax credit if you build in an energy community. So again, like there's the financing side, but there's also the demand pull for investment from the tax credits. And then there's also a separate 48C manufacturing tax credit that covers 30% of the investment in a new manufacturing facility. For some reason, that's capped at $10 billion in total tax credits. It's, I think, the only tax credit that has a financial cap to it. But $4 billion of that is explicitly set aside for energy communities as well. So that's going to drive at least $13 billion in investment in advanced manufacturing, you know, clean energy manufacturing in energy communities also. A lot of red, shall we say, uh, make a note, which tend red, let's say. Yeah, the states do, although to be fair, I mean, like a lot of like you think about manufacturing activities in like Georgia or Alabama or Mississippi, where you've got predominantly African-American communities in a little bit more urban areas that you know mm -hmm. work in manufacturing too. So it's a broad suite and it will also improve environmental justice because these programs will help take more coal plants out of operations. The DOE program also, it's not just power generation, it's also oil refineries, you know, petrochemical feedstocks, production, processing, storage, delivery. So all those facilities as well on the oil side of things. And so, you know, this is there to help accelerate the turnover of capital from the dirty economy to the clean economy and to reduce the environmental impacts and, re, you know, and remediate the prior damages um, of those facilities. Um, and we, again, we don't model either the USDA program or this energy community investment financing at DOE and our current modeling. Um, I expect that when we include it, which we're going to try to do in our optimistic case next time, it'll drive that, you know, seven or 8% coal generation share that I talked about a mm -hmm. long time ago on this podcast. Mm -hmm. um, <laughs> that'll drive that down much, much lower. And we might see much more rapid coal retirement, you know, over the, the next decade when you factor in the impact of these bills or these two financing programs. Got it. Final two questions. I promise. One is you say in, in your modeling that this does not get the U.S. all the way to its 2030 Paris target, which is I think is 50% reduction by 2030. But it gets us within striking distance such that supplementary activity from states and cities could get us the rest of the way. 
I want to try to get a sense of the magnitude of that. Would, if we wanted states and cities to fill that gap, would we need them to ramp up their activity at a similar pace that the federal government will be ramping up its activity? In other words, like, are they going to have to scramble and mobilize in the same sort of crazy way that the feds are going to as a result of this bill? Or is it more just like a topper? Yeah, unfortunately, I don't have a good quantitative sense of that right now. Um, so I, I don't know, maybe a unsatisfactory answer. I mean, they definitely have to increase their ambition or expand it right to more jurisdictions. And, you know, the bill does make that much more likely, right, by making it cheaper across the board to reach more aggressive clean energy goals at the state level, at the local level, at the institutional level, you know, your say your university systems trying to figure out what to do, like other, you know, that gets much cheaper. Corporate leaders, you know, that are trying to figure out how to improve their emissions uh, uh, impact their, you know, things get cheaper for them. And so when things get cheaper, people tend to be more aggressive and do more of it. And so I do think it makes it easier for state and local and institutional actors, corporate actors to all uh, increase their ambition and do more. And I don't have a good sense of how much more is required at the moment to close the gap. It's a great research question that we should try to figure out, but it does make it much more likely that those actions occur. And that's not accidental, right? And that's part of the philosophy of the bill. The other thing, I, I, it's not just making it cheaper, it's also the economic opportunity that the bill drives, right? Like, you know, it, it's the same kind of thing. Like, yes, you could have a governor that wants to really just, you know, bite off their nose to spite their face, right? And, mm -hmm. and not do any of this. But like, you know, there's going to be hundreds of billions of dollars of investment, uh, you know, really trillions of dollars of investment over the next decade going into clean energy generation and facilities, but also manufacturing and supply chains all over the country. And, you know, the only way you're going to get that is if you compete with your neighbors and your, you know, and your neighboring states and, and neighboring towns to try to draw that investment. And, you know, we do know that there's a lot of examples of that, right, of, of local governments and states competing actively to cite, you know, investment and business opportunities. Mm -hmm. And so I do think that that will kick off, you know, a lot of additional state action there, just the sort of, in addition to the fact that it's cheaper to build this stuff and meet your climate goals, it also establishes your state as a clear market for these technologies yes. and a friendly place jobs, for them. Jobs, jobs, you know, jobs, 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 jobs. Yep. Okay. Which segues perfectly into our final question, which is, I guess one way of asking it is how durable are these policies? Like in the nightmare scenario that Republicans get a trifecta in 2024, which ones of these will be easy to knock out and which ones do you think could endure regardless? And then more broadly, how do you think these policies in this bill, not necessarily the passage of the bill itself, obviously that's going to have some kind of effect on the midterm, who knows, probably modest, but the policies in the bill, the implementation of the bill, how do you think it's going to affect the politics of climate and clean energy over the next decade? So honestly, I think you need to have a whole another podcast on that question because <laughs> there is a very specific, very well thought out, very explicit strategy here around exactly those things. I'll try to summarize it briefly, but really, I mean, there is a reason that this approach it, a worked in the first place, and I am much more optimistic will last in the long run. And that's because, you know, in contrast to a carbon tax or a cap and trade policy where you're making fossil energy more expensive for everyone, and you're using a single instrument to do it all across the economy, uniting opposition against that instrument yes. everywhere. You make enemies of everyone and give them all a single target. Exactly. 
and we have seen this in Australia and, you know, and, and Ontario and other places where you've had big backlashes to these kinds of policies. You've seen some of them survive those, but you've seen a lot of this, you know, and we've failed in the U.S. to do this uh, in the past. This set of policies is, is A, not a single policy. It's like 50, right? And each one drives emissions reductions and does part of the work. Uh, and so that makes it harder, right? Um, and each one has a clear constituency that it benefits. And so it's easier to rally support for specific policies and, you know, and they're narrower and less expensive and less visible. And overall, the bill is designed to make clean energy cheaper, which means make energy and energy technologies cheaper for everyone, which is a benefit that any future recession would be taking away Mm -hmm. instead of a perceived damage that they would be eliminating. Yes. And... It's designed to drive very clear, salient, near-term benefits. Maybe not by twenty, you know, November twenty twenty-two, but over the next decade, there will be you know hundreds of billions of dollars of new local tax revenue tied to these kinds of projects. Yes, and new factories, dozens and dozens of new factories. There will be over a million new jobs in manufacturing. There will be a million more in installation and construction and maintenance of these facilities, and they will be spread all over the country. And they will be driven specifically into energy communities that have traditionally been tied to the fossil energy economy. And so the, their affiliation with and, and self-interested ties to the uh, fossil energy economy may not be eliminated, but it will certainly be complicated <laughs> um, over time. And it will deliver very near-term salient environmental health benefits for particularly environmental justice communities all over the country and for other fence line communities, right, around these infrastructures. And so it's designed to make clean energy cheaper and deliver salient economic interests and, you know, and air pollution benefits that are felt in the short term, way before we can see any signal in the climate chaos that is unfolding around us. You know, there's a, there's 50 targets that you need to hit to really, to upend this entire bill. (laughs) So I, I think it's, it is really designed to be much more politically durable. And instead of having a high risk of triggering a backlash that then has to be defended just to stay where we are, of actually driving positive feedback loops that make further action much more likely and um, you know politically supported over time. And that was all on purpose, right? There's yes. a philosophy behind this. Unlike reversing a carbon tax, which is sort of vaguely invisible to most people, or even like something like the Obama's clean power plan, like that hardly meant anything to any normal people. Now, reversing this is literally like, you're getting a bunch of money to build cool stuff. I'm going to take that away from you. Yeah. You're raising energy prices. You're hurting investments in manufacturing and energy security. You know, you're going to have billion billion dollar companies lined up to fight you because they're making money off of this. You're going to have local elected officials pissed off because you're jeopardizing investment yes. in their you know, districts. Like it, It's just not a good idea. <laughs> like with every dollar you spend, you're creating constituents Yes, uh, everywhere. So this is like a constituent creation machine, this bill, just shooting money out every which way, creating constituents in every 50 states. It's not what an economist would consider elegant, but it is what someone who has fought in the clean energy trenches for 15 years (laughs) considers quite elegant, actually, uh, because it is a political strategy designed to succeed and to accelerate over time. Also, nothing more elegant than a bill that passes. Yes. So, so elegant. Uh, This is ridiculous. What we did just now, uh, I have no idea. No one is listening to us anymore. No one is is still listening. I have no idea what we're going to do. I'm probably going to have to break this up into two, maybe three episodes. God knows. (laughs) Jesus. But but again, you and I know 
this is panting at the finish line and high-fiving, right? Like, yeah. we, we can relax going forward a little bit about this until the next round of horrible things we have to fight comes along. So thank you so much for taking all this time, and I hope in the uh, coming days and weeks you get lots and lots of rest. Yeah, I, uh, I hung up the hammock in the backyard yesterday, <laughs> and I took a nap, and I hope to do more of that soon. <laughs> Beautiful. Thanks so much, Jesse. Thanks, Dave. Thank you for listening to the Volts Podcast. It is ad-free, powered entirely by listeners like you. If you value conversations like this, please consider becoming a paid Volts subscriber at volts.wtf. Yes, that's volts.wtf, so that I can continue doing this work. Thank you so much, and I'll see you next time. <laughs>